Okay, so maybe we have a town hall, or maybe we don't. Let's see what happens. Uh, this is the Cannabis Closet Podcast with Can Queen and MJ. There you are. Uh, we are coming to you with the um, town hall in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, so yeah, let me just bring it up on screen, see how we can hear it and everything. And then we're going to, we're going to go off screen, uh, at six 30 when it starts. Okay. Okay. Looks like there's a few people there. Hello. hello. Um, do you have headphones in? She doesn't. I can't do it. <laughs> so, so is there? Make sure that they speak up. I guess. Would it be better if I moved closer? Yes, it would. Absolutely, oh, it would. I can 1, barely 000%. hear you. All right. Maybe this seat. <laughs> Is that, or do you want me like close, close? As close as you can get without disturbing the panel. Okay. I got this VIP hookup. (laughs) I don't have a stand. That's for for rich people. I don't have a stand. (laughs) I'd be super grateful. Then I can smash my chicken tendies. Yeah, I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I can't really hear y'all. We're not really talking. Huh? Okay. You can't hear us at all? Like, it's very, very low on, our, on my end. Okay. Nice stuff. Let's see. Can you at least hear them? I can hear Brennan. Oh, there you are. That's better. So if you're in the comments, go ahead and tag your friends. This is... Missouri. Ooh. I sure do appreciate you. We appreciate you. Yes. Yeah, so I am live streaming. <laughs> oh, he walked away. <laughs> oh, he didn't he, care. He don't care. He's like, I don't care. Uh, if you're in the comments, tell tell your friends we're here. We're uh we're streaming the town hall in St. Louis, Missouri, where John Payne and Brendan England are going to answer questions. About Amendment 3. It is called the pathway of pow- to power, right? The pathway yeah. to power. <clears throat> I like this little, like, dab office you got going on here. <laughs> you see this? Just straight yeah. up office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amazing. We were there the other day. Speaking of which, (laughs) 
show this ticker. I think it's the table. It just kind of reminds me of like a filing cabinet. And I'm like, what you got in your cabinet? <laughs> Is this the last year's tabs? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, it's so pretty in here. It's nice. It's awesome. So we're going to um, go off screen, but we're going to leave you on screen so you're okay. going to be able to hear us. Um, I don't know if you can see the comments or not, but. Mm -mm. Uh, well, hold up. Let me. There's nobody in the comment section right now. I don't know how okay. much viewership we're going to get because it's kind of late, but um, we're offering it. So it'll be there for uh, anybody. To watch the after. So, yeah, we're going to go out. Okay. Uh, and then uh, sure. You'll be the only one in the in the room. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I got a friend here that's going to hook me up with the stand. So we're going to actually plop it on the little desk here by the dab bar. And then I can go smash my tendies. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I just want to get real, real close so that we can hear everything that they're saying. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be. Where are you thinking about setting up? Just like right here, over here on the desk. Uh, see if we can get a little, a little closer. Really hooking it up, sweet. Yeah, no. This is what happens when people come together for the greater cause. That's right. If you're watching now or you're watching later, this event's being held at the Cola Lounge. And across the bottom of the screen, you can see Cola Lounge's cash app. I'm a what? Cola, Cola Lounge's cash app. Dollar sign. The Cola STL is where you can send them monies for a donation. They're re re <laughs> renovating. Renovating. They just moved into a new space. That's Brennan right there. <laughs> so definitely uh, hit up that cash app. Throw a dollar in. Throw, a in. throw five bucks in. The house. Help them out. Look, nice. Yes. All right. All right. So uh, we're gonna leave the room, and it's all it's all y'all now. All right. Should I? So should I? No, because by mute, then you can't hear him. So never mind. Yeah, you can't mute. <laughs> All right. Let's see how this works. Ah, perfect. This is going to be perfect. Beautiful. Excellent. Okay. And also, you won't need the headphones because we're going to not be here talking. So. <laughs> All right. Are those mics distracting, or is that all right? Or no, that's perfect. Okay. It's 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 all you guys right now. So cool. Sweet. All right. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Uh, Thanks for live streaming for us. Yeah, for sure. I'm gonna go smash my tendies. Yes, yes. Eat those chicken tenders. Say what? I said yes. Go enjoy those chicken tenders. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, uh, if you're watching now, or if you're watching later. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna pull out of the screen. Uh, the debate is gonna start here, or I'm sorry, the town hall. It's not a debate; it's a town hall. Is going to start here in a few moments, um, and so we hope that you get the information that you need from the individuals that are participating today. Um, it's going to be uh, Brennan England, who is the proprietor of the Cola Lounge. Uh, definitely check it out if you're in St. Louis and hit up that cash app, dollar sign, the Cola STL. And John Payne uh, discussing Amendment 3. So enjoy.
and that's broadcasting on everything. Looks like it's running okay. So, uh, in that, and then whatever you're, uh, yeah, you just pull up, put up the whole thing on the screen, and I've got your, your mics off. You just give me a little cue whenever you want to go. I'm ready to person audience. Yeah, 
that's what we're live through. That's what they're asking. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go ahead and share in the Twitter Canvas Network because I'm having them there. So we won't have to get my ass through. Right. I was going to say, and then after we after we actually start, unfortunately, uh, I'll have to ask for no torches. Sorry. <laughs> I forgot my fucking proxy in the car. You tell me. Ninety seconds, folks, and we're going to bring it live. Clean it up, Mary. Get it together. 
Uh, let's see, do you want me to introduce you as John Payne of the Medicaid Consultants? Uh, no, Campaign Manager of Billy Campaign Manager Billy I mean, you can do both, but uh, yeah, specifically Campaign Manager Billy Cool. Hey everybody, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks to everybody that's in the room with us too for joining us. Thank you to John Payne, our guest. Uh, my name is Brendan England and I'm the State Director for Migration Medical Marijuana. And I'm, first, I'm just going to give you a little bit of an outline for tonight and let everybody know exactly what the schedule is going to be uh, so that we know what to expect. Uh, then I'm going to lay just a couple of general ground rules uh, for the experience, uh, and then we're going to get cracking. So, uh, but a little bit about me. So, I'm, like I said, I'm the State Director for Minorities for Medical Marijuana. M4MM is the largest minority advocacy organization for the cannabis industry in the world. Uh, we span over 30 different countries, or excuse me, 30 different states and three different countries, and I am uh, fortunate enough to be the state director for this one. Uh, that means that I make sure that black and brown people, those that have been most affected by the war on drugs, have a space in the growing industry and that we have less and less space in jail for reasons that we never should have been there. Uh, we do that through a lot of programming, we do that through initiatives and through organization, and uh, I've used, used my platform to host events like this uh, so that we can continue to make informed decisions uh, as this as cannabis legalization becomes more of a, more of a reality for Missouri. Um, that's in front of that. Uh, we are also in the, the COLA private lounge where Buds meet, uh, one of the first private cannabis consumption lounges in Missouri. Um, it's the first child of the St. Louis Cannabis Club, uh, which is a resource network that connects the existing culture to the oncoming industry, and we do that through events like this one. We do that through service services like a mobile blood bar. Um, we do that with products like a CBD seltzer, and we do it with spaces like the Cold Lounge. And <clears throat> uh, the last thing to talk about is our sponsors. Uh, tonight, we have uh, three main sponsors uh, that are on with us this evening. Uh, we have Good Day Farm, uh, which we have somebody from Good Day Farm in the building with us tonight. Uh, we also have Organic Remedies, and we have Illicit Gardens. Uh, both of these, all three of these companies are major license holders in, in the state. And I just kind of want to talk a little bit about what that means to me. Because the redistribution of wealth, first of all, doesn't happen unless it redistributes. Um, and I'll just introduce, I'll just start with that. And um, in a time whenever brands, a lot of companies that even gave support for John and I's first discussion and debate, back in April, or back in February, um, either had too many funds that were invested um, or were too intimidated to kind of get in the middle of the crossfire of, of something like this because they just they thought they might have too much to lose. So I really, um, I just want to take a minute to acknowledge these brands for setting aside um, political bias, um, their own corporate interests, and uh, really making a statement that this type of discussion needs to happen and needs to continue. And that even though they very strongly support this initiative, uh, they also really support there being very transparent conversations and constructive criticism moving forward. So I thought it meant a lot just to what their brands stand for and what their representatives in Missouri 
uh, have really literally put their money where their mouth is to make sure uh, that folks like me and physicians like this have a voice, uh, a space for a voice to talk about these things. So thank you to our sponsors. Uh, we appreciate you. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about Legal Missouri 22, Amendment 3, which is, is it fair to say that it's kind of a, a uh, it's a, a uh, expansion on Amendment 2. This is the, the sequel, yeah. in a way. I mean, it's, it is literally Section 2 of uh, or what, right Amendment 2 became Article 14, and this is adding a new section into that. Thanks. And with me to talk about it is John Payne, who's the campaign campaign manager for Amendment 3. He was also a consultant for Amendment 2 and um, has been an activist and an organizer, uh, more than an activist, has been an organizer um, in the cannabis legalization efforts uh, for most did not over a decade. Oh, I started, uh, I mean, really when I was still in high school, but back, uh, I was very involved with Students for a Sensible Drug Policy at Wash U starting in 2001. Uh, so that's that's where I really started getting into it. So I've been very active ever since then. Thanks. So <clears throat> the way this is going to lay out is that John and I are going to have a conversation. Tonight is not a debate. We did a debate last time and it was uh, fun. We're both trained debaters. We both like the sport of it and uh, we know how to keep enough respect and uh, you know enough decorum amongst us, even amongst the uh, with the intensity uh, to keep the topics on the table, which is uh, which, which we got to do back in February. Uh, this time, I wanted to slow the pace down a little bit, and I wanted it to be more of a voice of the community uh, for folks to just clearly ask questions and then for you to answer them, and then uh, we're just going to do a follow up to this. We're going to you know within I'm sure you know they. I would assume you wouldn't have a problem with this. That we'll uh, do like a, a fact-checking follow-up. We're going to go over the entire uh, the entire discussion that we have today, and just kind of have a summary of it. Everybody will also have uh, access to John uh, and to Legal Missouri directly. You can reach out to them through their social media platforms. I'm sure John uh, will have some contact that he can leave with us. So if you have questions after today, um, if we don't get to them in the comments. Uh, we'll make sure that your voice is heard. Uh, so the way this is going to be laid out, the uh, structure is that first I'm going to ask John, uh, John some questions after we both do some intros. I'm going to ask John some questions that I've taken both just from my own questioning and research, but also that I've taken um, collectively from social media over the last uh, three weeks or so, just as I've been uh, asking questions and polling online. Uh, the other piece that we're going to do is uh, we're also going to do a Q&A with the live audiences that's here. We let people ask questions in person. And uh, then we're, with time that allots, we are going to take questions from online, uh, from comments on Facebook. Um, and uh, just a couple of ground rules. Uh, the main thing is, is that we just got to keep it clean and we've got to keep it uh, strategic with questioning. That means that if you ask a question that we've answered already, uh, we might reference that question and kind of summarize. Um, so try to try to keep up with things. And if there's something that we have already answered, a few we've already answered, uh, then we'll come back. Then we'll just uh, summarize on that. Um, no profanity, uh, no cussing, or excuse me, no no uh, contempt or insulting or name calling. No drama. Uh, we're here to ask real questions. And if we're giving, I'm I am giving you the time because uh, I've organized this. This John is my guest. Um, if I'm giving you the time to speak, uh, then I expect you to have the respect to ask a legitimate question uh, for the sake of all of our time and strategy. You know, this is a time whenever 
a lot of people don't have a voice. They don't have an opportunity to ask some real questions. Uh, so I encourage you to really take that opportunity to ask some solid questions. Um, that also means that uh, questions can't be open-ended um, or left with generalizations. Um, there's an entire detailed list that I've left online, but for commenters online, just know that if you're spamming or if you're trolling, and you know what that means, uh, that we will just be muting your account. We don't have time for that today. Um, getting into the goods. So, John, before I start asking you some questions, um, you, you just want to tell everybody kind of, you can give everybody a little bit of an intro of how you got to this point, and then uh, tell us just in summary what legal uh, mode 22 is here to do. Sure. Uh, how far back do you want me to go? Right. So you get got to this point. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I started in uh, drug reform advocacy way back in, you know, like, like I said, in high school, uh, and then was part of Students for a Sensible Drug Policy. Uh, you know, I'm against the drug war in its entirety. Uh, if I could wave a magic wand and, and prohibition of all these things overnight, I would. Uh, but it is a, uh, you know, it's a saying that tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Uh, so it, it takes time. It takes a lot of a lot of hard work, uh, and it's incremental. Uh, and so, you know, in 2011, I started uh, working with Show Me Cannabis, uh, and we worked on a ballot initiative to legalize marijuana in 2012. It was a very grassroots effort. Uh, you know, I enjoyed that work, uh, and I uh, was proud that we gathered as many signatures as we did. But ultimately, you know, we probably only got about 20% of the way there, uh, just with almost purely volunteer efforts. Uh, and so, you know, I, I decided uh, I wanted to keep with it, uh, but uh, we would have to, you know, assemble a real coalition in order to uh, make reform possible in the state. Uh, so, you know, we continued to work through the local legislature uh, and had some mild successes there. Uh, you know, there was the passage of the, the hemp bill, the CBD program, uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, we were very frustrated that it didn't seem like the legislature was ever going to move on uh, any real reform. Uh, so that's why in 2015, we filed uh, the first attempt at passing what is now Article 14. Uh, and uh, you know, that, that campaign was a real heartbreaker because we uh, gathered pretty much, uh, we gathered 200,000 plus valid signatures uh, and we fell short by about 1,000 in one congressional district, uh, Congressional District 2, which is mostly south and west St. Louis County, some of St. Charles and Jefferson County. Uh, and uh, But we came right back, uh, put Amendment 2 on the ballot in 2018, passed that with two-thirds of the vote uh, against two other initiatives, uh, one statute and one the, uh, the Brad Bradshaw Amendment that literally would have put him in, literally personally in charge of the program. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we did, in 2019, did some polling and saw that support for legalizing marijuana in Missouri uh, was broad enough that uh, a, an initiative could potentially pass here in 2020. Uh, and so we started to work on that uh, and uh, filed it, started gathering signatures. And it was actually the smoothest signature gathering experience I've ever had in my life, right up until March of 2020. Uh, and at which point that just became utterly impossible. So, uh, you know, we had to, had to shelve that. Uh, but one thing that was good about that is we then had the opportunity to go back and uh, revise uh, the amendment and make some changes to it, which I think have made it substantially stronger. Uh, so, you know, for instance, some of those changes are uh, we made the expungement function automatic as opposed to something that uh, people have petitioned for. Uh, we banned any use of no-knock swap rates for any sort of marijuana offense. 
uh, we uh, you know basically said that uh, the smell of marijuana the, does not constitute probable cause. A whole lot of uh, very strong criminal justice reforms that we put in there that I think can also serve as the basis for uh, reforms in other sectors of the criminal justice system. Uh, so you know we uh, then in about a year ago uh, in August uh, we filed uh, the, the initiative that is now Amendment Three. Uh, and we started collecting signatures in October of 2021, so just a, almost exactly a year uh, to the day. Uh, and, you know, that was uh, uh, that signature collection effort was maybe the hardest I've ever been a part of uh, because we were uh, the, dealing with still dealing with the pandemic. Uh, we also had uh, quite a bit of uh, not great weather, and also there was a, a real increase in, in wages happening and the inflation, so cost a lot more than it has ever cost to put something on the ballot. Uh, the cycle, uh, but we managed to get there, got it on the ballot, and so you know, Amendment Three will be on the ballot on November eighth. Uh, and really, the core three things that Amendment Three does: it legalizes the adult use of marijuana, uh, so it does not legalize for people under the age of twenty-one, but everyone over the age of twenty-one be able to legally possess, use, uh, cultivate their own personal amounts of marijuana, uh, and uh, then it will also automatically expunge. Nonviolent marijuana offenses, with the exception of sales to minors uh, and driving under the influence. Uh, and then finally, it will also bring a lot more uh, economic opportunity, uh, probably, you know, triple the market, double or triple the market that we currently have. Uh, and so, you know, it's uh, going to boost revenues for the, for the state. Uh, and those revenues will be dedicated to uh, the funding the automatic expungements. Uh, and then after that, uh, it will be equally divided between uh, the public defender system of the state, uh, which has been basically underfunded uh, chronically. Uh, they did get it funded this last year, but every year before that, for about the past decade, it's been very underfunded. Uh, then veterans health care, and finally drug abuse and addiction treatment services. Uh, so that's kind of the uh, the basic lay of the land. I feel like uh, probably most people here have uh, are familiar enough with uh, the, the amendment to know those those top line things. So I'm happy to kind of open it up to, to questions uh, from, I know, Brennan and start with questions. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the first uh, one of the first questions that I wanted to ask was, um, what exactly, just, just to clarify, because I've, and one, one thing too, before I start with questions, uh, I, I kind of also wanted to just make another statement just about politics in general. <clears throat> <clears throat> One of the things that I've seen and what I've felt and that even has been present on me a lot in this uh, in this election cycle has been uh, this kind of divisive, dualistic perspective of yes or no in politics, right? And uh, with that, it's kind of turned into a team sport. You know, it's really passionate. A lot of people are, are taking this issue very personally. Uh, and there are a lot of emotions involved with it. Uh, the statement I'd like to make to everybody here and to everybody that's listening uh, is that uh, in politics – You'll have people, uh, people that are on the same side of the political aisle uh, as their job, vote against each other on issues every session. Uh, you know, the Democrats vote against Democrats, Republicans vote against Republicans, and they go out to have drinks afterward. Uh, they still have, they're still okay with each other socially. And so I really just kind of use that as a piece of encouragement to the cannabis culture in general. Uh, just to drop some of the animosity uh, and some of the divisiveness that's being used whenever people don't see things the way that you see them or they have a different position than you have. 
because the people that are really writing the laws, they have to do this every day with each other. You know, and they vote things up and down. Different levels of politics, both uh, you know, locally, I'm the president of my neighborhood association. And um, every day, people are having to make decisions that are about themselves or not. And so I just kind of wanted to leave that piece as a piece of encouragement, uh, even as we continue to have communication from this point forward. Um, so with that said, uh, and, I, and I think it was really important for you to have a moment to talk a little bit about where you've come from uh, with this, just as an opportunity for you to humanize yourself a little bit. Uh, because in this situation, a lot of people get stripped of the humanity uh, when they're out here taking the licks. And I appreciate you standing, being able to stand here and let me hold your feet to the fire, ask you hard questions, um, knowing uh, in confidence that uh, that this is with good reason. So um, what exactly is your role with Amendment 3? So I'm the campaign manager. Basically, uh, I am in charge of... Uh, you know, I don't do every single thing, obviously, but I'm the one that uh, kind of oversees every aspect of it. Uh, so the fundraising, the communications, the field work, uh, all that, you know, everyone ultimately reports to me. How many people were responsible in the writing of the ministry? I mean, dozens. Uh, I, I couldn't say exactly how many people, but uh, you know, there was a fairly large number of folks that were involved. That we had, uh, I think, bi-weekly drafting calls. Uh, that involved uh, you know, the, all the normal chapters in the state, uh, the St. Louis City and St. Louis County and the ACP. I um, did get some input from the Missouri ACLU, uh, and there were some folks from the, uh, the industry that were involved. Got it. Is there like a public list somewhere that someone can just see like a directory of who put their hands on this language? Uh, I don't think there's a public list, and there's there's well more than that that actually put their hands on it in some regard because you know sometimes a technical question would come up and you'd say. Well, this person from maybe another state or an attorney that has worked in this field might know that. Uh, and so, you know, you kind of get out to that level. There's probably 50 or 60 that had, uh, and, and more than that, that, you know, would uh, bring, you know, there were some people that would literally post on Facebook, like, hey, I'm part of the drafting of this. What feedback uh, do you have? And uh, I know a lot of the normal chapters did, you know, solicitation of questions and input. Uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to specifically say where some ideas came from, but, you know, there was some, like, open sourcing of those, like, ideas. Got it. Um, but some of the language also has been influenced and inspired by other states. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, there, I mean, there was a lot of things that we took uh, bits and pieces of here and there. Uh, kind of the overall structure of it is uh, really uh, this true of our, uh, the Article 14 in general. Uh, but is uh, a lot like uh, a lot of the uh, uh, law in Colorado. Uh, that was kind of the, the overarching structure of it. Uh, and then, you know, we took a fair amount of stuff from New York. They were the first state to pass any kind of automatic expungement. A lot of that idea came from them. Uh, and uh, you know, there's a fair bit, a little bit from Oregon. Uh, so, yeah, we, we borrowed and took things from other states. Got it. So um, we're going to jump right into expungement. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about with expungement is um, the, well, before I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep that out. I mean, I got a lot of questions. I want to get to them. That was more philosophical. Um, so referring to, uh, in section uh, two specifically, the purpose, uh, the amendment language specifies uh, that part of the purpose is to uh, remove the commercial production and distribution of marijuana from the illicit market 
prevent revenue generated from commerce in marijuana from going uh, in, excuse me, from going to criminal enterprises. Um, I'm going to read that one more time. Remove the commercial production and distribution of marijuana from the illicit market and prevent revenue generated from commerce and marijuana from going to criminal enterprises. I tried to look up a definition for what a criminal enterprise was under the language, but I didn't see anything. Yeah, I mean, I will say also just the purpose of section, it's not really uh, a whole lot of, you're almost never going to have something that is uh, actively enforced out of the purpose of section. It's just kind of a, an overview of here is what the intentions are in this, in this event. So in the intention, it reads as to remove the commercial production and distribution of marijuana from the illicit market um, and preventing commerce generated, well, however we define criminal enterprises, it's preventing commerce from going to the illicit market. Um, how does the amendment plan to do this? So by allowing it to be legally sold, uh, you know, that's, uh, and also, you know, I, I think all, all comp you're always competing with the illicit market if you're in the legal market. That's true whether you're talking about marijuana, alcohol, tobacco, I, I don't care what it is. Uh, and so one of the things that was really key in that is, you know, we're going to have, the, I believe, the lowest tax rate uh, on adult use marijuana sales in the country. Uh, one of the reasons that we, we did that is because we know that if you tax it too highly, that it, it does drive people into the illicit market. Uh, and so, you know, the, the general public does want good revenues to come off of this. Uh, but if you put, you know, 25, 30 percent uh, taxes on it, then people will absolutely go to the illicit market. And there's not really, you know, all the enforcement in the world isn't going to, to stop that. Uh, it's just a fundamental fact. Of the so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, but to go back, um, so what I heard you say, though, is that that basically, what, if, if, I, if I heard you right, you were basically, if I'm paraphrasing, it says this, but we don't mean this, is kind of what I heard. Because it says, uh, prevent revenue generated from commerce and marijuana from going to criminal enterprises. Um, this is, I think, something that should be focused on, specifically because we're defining who's a criminal. And in expungement, we're also defining who's not a criminal and who will not be a criminal actress. I mean, that is the opportunity that people will have criminal records removed. Right. Um, unless uh, they are part of what would you define as a criminal enterprise, uh, then they could still be at risk of a person, not that's, that is in jail, but someone who is in the illicit market uh, would still be at risk of being targeted uh, as defined as a criminal enterprise. I mean, if you're, if you're, uh, are you saying someone is continuing to sell outside of the, the regulated market after the passage of Amendment Three? That is that the, the scenario? Correct. Yeah, that would still be a criminal act, uh, and you know that's the, that's true of alcohol or tobacco as well. Uh, you know, and frankly, anything. I mean, you can't sell anything. As a libertarian, I'm not a big fan of this, but you know, you can't sell anything unless you pay taxes on it. Mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, that that is the law in this country, and pretty much every country, you know, that has any sort of form of sales tax. Got it. So, is there similar language? Um, you know, are, I'm just curious if you know prohibitionist language around alcohol or alcohol uh, licensing language uses terminology like criminal enterprises when defining people that are like like people that are 
bootlegging alcohol at home. I'm curious if they're considered a criminal enterprise. Yeah. I mean, they, they certainly would be. I mean, I don't know if the, you know, the, the exact language of those statutes or you know, what have you, but you know, yeah, the, uh, the, the ATF, that is uh, still a major thing that they do. I mean, it's kind of surprising to people, but yeah, they, they still arrest like dozens. Uh, that's not a whole lot of people, but you know, yeah, uh, every year, moonshine stills are, are broken up, uh, particularly in like Kentucky and West Virginia. It just seems like there's that. So there's this interesting middle ground here where people are going to be free for things that they've done in the past, where some of those things, if they were to go back and do them again, they would go right back to jail. Yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, the thing is, is that we're providing a legal opportunity for them, the people to have that market uh, and to, uh, so there is no longer a need for the illicit market, is the idea. Yeah. So uh, you see where I'm at with this interesting lattice, though, this overlay of where people from the legacy market, because that's what I, you know, just, and I just, to give it a turn that's more uh, respectful of those that have uh, put their necks on the line, that have risked their lives, that have risked their, their, their families. Um, honestly, to build the culture that now that you're a amendment can build a business on, right? It's like without that illicit market, there would be no amendment three. And so there's this overlap where people are being criminalized uh, still, uh, but then they're also being given an option out of criminalization, but they just can't do it again. It's kind of how it feels. And I'm curious of how, you know, I know that was kind of more of a statement, but I'm curious of, you know, what your response is for that. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, yeah, and maybe there's a disagreement on just the fundamental purposes of legalization here, but, you know, the, I've always thought the purposes. All right, we're going to bring this above ground and put it into a legal regulated market. And look, uh, you know, I'm a person who ultimately favors uh, a lot less regulation than we have in the society generally. Uh, but there is a lot of regulation on commerce across the board here. Uh, you know, look, I, this is get, maybe getting a little far afield, but, uh, you know, the American Medical Association is essentially a private entity that gets to determine the, the supply of doctors in this country. Uh, I think that's crazy, but the general public supports that. Yeah, and, uh, I think it's so. uh, something that we, we just have to you know, recognize that there is uh, where I'm at politically may not jive with, you know, where, <laughs> frankly, like 95 percent of the rest of the population is. And, you know, there sometimes you have to make compromises and say this is a lot closer to my vision of what the, the world should be, even if it's not exactly it. I hear that. Yeah, thank you. And I think that it really, for me, I think that the concern for most folks is the difference between regulation and criminalization. And that how we how do we create regulations without criminalizing people? You know, and how do we how do we build regulations that encourage a structured market uh, that don't give way for people to use the word of the law, regardless of the spirit of the law, to use it as its and its technical terms, uh, to knock the big sill bust the door down, you know. Um, and I, I kind of want to I'll use that as a topic for the next thing. So, in the in the some of the language, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute because I just want to stay on my list here. Um, so. We're going to stay on expungement. These are some questions that have also been pulled from Facebook. Uh, one of them was talking about uh, the, the 20,000 person per year marijuana arrest number. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the 
question was, what is that number based on? Uh, it's the UCR, Uniform Crime Reporting, which is, uh, so all local police agencies report all their arrest data every year uh, to the FBI, or at least they're supposed to. Uh, and so this is actually almost certainly an undercount because uh, a lot of the local agencies don't always report it or report it incompletely. Uh, but it, you know, you can go onto the, the UCR website and it, it'll show you all the data for all marijuana arrests. Uh, they don't have 21, 2021 data up there yet. Uh, but if you go back to 2005, uh, to the, the like, it, it kind of escalates in the 90s. 2005 is where you really start hitting it, uh, over 20,000. Uh, there is a pretty substantial fall off in 2020, uh, which this is not unique to Missouri or unique to marijuana. There was just a fall off in the number of arrests in the country, period, because of the pandemic. So just there weren't people out; they were all at home, so there weren't as many arrests. But uh, if you, uh, even if you exclude the 2020 data, I believe the number is 19,665 arrests per year uh, on average from 2005 through 2020. Uh, if you do, if you do exclude the 2020 data as a weird outlier, uh, then it's like 21,000. Got it. So <clears throat> back directly to expungement. Who gets out of jail and when? So anyone who is serving a misdemeanor, a E, D, or C felony of up to three pounds, and they can uh, petition for that immediately upon the pass or immediately upon the effective date. And how does the petitioning work? So the public defender's office, which again we put money towards, uh, will come up with forms that uh, people that they will be responsible for helping people that are in jail fill those out. Uh, that is one thing that you know if you're if you're in the system, you actually do have access to a public defender by default, uh, and so they will be able to utilize those resources uh, to apply and process that with the system. Uh, and you know the, we we did talk about just putting something in there that just said this happens automatically. Uh, basically, what the one of our attorneys was former chief of staff uh, for Governor Mel Carnahan. It said, it's like, look, the, the DOC, the Department of Corrections, will just be like, no, uh, we, we, we're going to need a court order on each individual to tell us to let that person out. Uh, and so that's the, that, that's the process that we set up to satisfy that. And one of the concerns that I've heard from public defenders is that is the, the, the concern of time, how much time it could possibly take to actually clear up all of these records that how they would possibly be able to fund enough people uh, to cover these. Has there been any type of estimates on how long this would actually take, how many public defenders would be needed to cover them? I don't know if they've specifically looked at that, but you know, the Department of Corrections did put out the fiscal analysis that they sent to the state auditor, uh, the number of prisoners that you know, they, they're bringing in per year that would meet you know, the, these qualifications. And it's, it's not a huge number, it's uh, 17 uh, per year. Uh, and they serve an average of 1.1 years. Uh, that is people that have a marijuana-only sentence because there's often, you know, well, there's marijuana and then they also have other drugs. And that, we literally cannot expunge those in a, in, a mar- in, a, in a thing that is about marijuana because we are confined to one subject uh, by, by law when you file an initiative. So, so I just want to make sure I heard you right that there are only, on average, 17 people a year that would qualify for this type of content. There are only 17 people serving uh, each year that are sentenced for marijuana-only uh, crimes. Below three pounds? No, no, period, period. Yeah, that are uh, in prison that are each year uh, that are just marijuana. That's, that's the DFC assessment. I'm just letting the entire, I'm letting the entire first Facebook first sit on that. 
So there are a lot, lot more people that are, you know, have, uh, you know, unsupervised parole or, excuse me, unsupervised probation or, you know, are uh, in county jails, but I'm talking about actual specific prison. Yeah, in prison. Yeah. Um, so is there a number on how many people are in prison or have sentences that are on parole uh, that would qualify or that don't qualify because their charge was three pounds or more? I don't you know. The, the Department of Corrections declined to go into that. As I said, it would take, they would have to review all the cases, and that was uh, more burdensome than they were willing to do on the initial fiscal analysis. And that's basically the, you know, the only place that I would be able to get that data. That sounds to me like this is going to be where we're going to see have a lot of work because there are probably a lot of qualifiers in there. And that they don't want to dig through that. That's what it sounds like to me. Is that what, is that what it sounds like to you? It's, oh, it's going to be work. And look, there, there, I don't think there's a way around because uh, here's the thing: once you get beyond uh, the 35 grams, the law is not. It's not you know uh, possession of marijuana or uh, trafficking of marijuana. It's you know possession or trafficking of a controlled mm -hmm. substance. And so it is not. There is not some like statute in the criminal code that we could even reference and say all the people convicted for this are the ones that uh, are you know, people, they are going to have to go through the court records and determine that. And they would have to do that regardless, because otherwise, you know, you'd be like, well, we're going to let out all the people that have heroin sentences, federal sentences. Uh, so I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but just, we can't, that's not possible. Smooth, but run it up. Now, is it fair to say that there are a lot of people that uh, are going to stay in jail that won't have cannabis on the offenses because of that three pound limit. I don't know exactly, but I don't think the number will be large. And I think it is uh, important to consider, you know, two things. One, this is, you know, I, I think we have to deal with the political reality of if we push this too far, then this could fail. And I think that the repercussions of that are, it's not, oh, now the legislature is going to take this up and uh, be engaged on it. That is going to be viewed as a as something that I get, I get this that. is going to make it harder. I think it is easier to work on those cases if this passes. I mean, what we've seen in most states with the, when something like this passes is then there is yet more uh, you know uh, impetus to go in and uh, work on the, the cases that were outside of the scope of that. Uh, you know, like in Illinois, they had a really really bad expungement system out the gate. It basically, only, you had to apply for it. It only applied to misdemeanors, so literally like 30 grams, that was it. And then eventually they were like, this isn't working. And so Pritzker just was like, all right, fine. We're just making this all automatic. My office is ordering that, which is within the power of any governor. Uh, and they did. They, they uh, processed like nearly a million expungements after that. Uh, and that, that I think has been a very good thing. But you know, I think you have to get over that, that initial hurdle, and then that, that keeps the momentum moving forward. Right, but other than other than us just kind of looking at that with hope, we don't really have. There's no like tangible path for that. We just can kind of look for that, right? Well, I think there is a tangible path for it uh, because then it's you know we, the same coalition of people that have been fighting for this continue. I mean, like I'm not saying stopping. That's not my uh, you know I I have never thought like oh I get this done and then it's it's that's it. I mean I, I'm dedicated to this. I know like all the people in the normal chapters and frankly the, a lot of people in the industry. Uh, want to see this, uh, see you know, continue this until there aren't any more people in prison for for marijuana, right? So, so one of my, and, you know, I think that one of my biggest concerns with the campaign has not been, and this would be with any campaign, is uh, 
just marketing or advertising something, presenting it in a way where it feels like it's more than it is. And I think that a lot of people are concerned about that in a lot of ways. I think that people are concerned about it with expungement. Um, and I think they're, they're concerned about it with the micro licensing program. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and I think that some of this kind of proves true to that. You know, when we get down into some of the details of how many people this is actually hitting at once, we're not really hitting that many people. Well, one thing I would push back on that: the people that would be eligible for expungement that are not currently in the in, in prison—that's I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of people. And again, it's hard to put an exact number on that. But if you go back to 1986, I believe, which is when the UCR data begins, and of course there are arrests before that, but that's just they aren't—they weren't being reported to the FBI. Uh, I believe the number is about 480,000 total arrests. So, so just to be clear, and I may have already asked this, but I have to ask again. Is there a timeline on how long it would take to get these people free? Or so, to get their records quick? So yes, uh, on the expungement, so there's two separate provisions. There's the release from prison and from uh, probation, parole, and then there is the actual expungement of records. And that timeline is for anyone who is has a misdemeanor, uh, that is the first six months, uh, for any of the uh, EDC felonies up to three pounds, that is within the year. And then for anyone who has a felony that is higher than that, it is upon the completion of a sentence. So if anyone has a you know a felony from 20 years ago, that is also I mean based more or less immediate within the year. Got it. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to keep things rolling. Um, let's see here. So uh, I asked this about three pounds, um, and I'm asking about uh, people crossing state lines. So one of the things that's in the, the measure is that it says that if you were ticketed uh, while under the influence, right, or crossing state lines, or two of the other uh, the, the, the exceptions that would that you would not qualify for expungement, correct? Yeah. So that means, is that accurate to say that if someone was, say, driving from Kansas City to Kansas City, Kansas, or from driving from St. Louis to East St. Louis, or from East St. Louis to St. Louis? If it, was, ticket. If it, well, if it was a material point of the case, uh, and here's the thing, that is also a, that, that's because it involves federal jurisdiction once you get into that. Uh, and so, you know, the, one of the things that the federal government has said is, okay, you can have these programs within the states, uh, but you have a mandate to try to keep it within contained within the state. Uh, and But I will also say this, pretty much the when there is a material point that is about crossing state lines, it's not those, a federal case. Those cases generally go back better. And so there is literally, I mean, that, that's just, we can't do anything. Like we, direct in Missouri, through our system, cannot do anything about that. That has to be done at the federal level. More about expungement. See. One of the questions from online was how would convictions be evaluated if the marijuana crime was listed alongside other crimes? Um, would marijuana crimes, and I'm just going to kind of layer these, uh, would marijuana crimes categorized under unclear terminology such as controlled substance be eligible under an automatic expungement? Yes, but the court will have to go in and actually dig up the records of the case to figure that out. Uh, and again, that's I, I don't think there is any anything we could have written in the law to make that otherwise. 
because that is just the way the statute is written, is it does not specify marijuana. It just says controlled substance. So we have to basically say, all right, the, the ones that are about marijuana, uh, and you know, the, the courts have come out, they've, they've also sent in their fiscal analysis, and they say it's going to cost about $7 million to do this. And I think that's probably pretty reasonable. So uh, specifically, to be clear, what, uh, what government entity is going to be responsible for evaluating the records? The, the circuit courts of the state. The circuit courts of the state, yes, are going to be responsible for evaluating the records for those who will qualify for expungement. They will be, yeah, responsible for processing. I, and I think that's pretty much, yeah, they, they would have to be the ones to do it. They are the, the repository of all the uh, criminal records in the state. Got it. Uh, let's see. Is there a limited time for which they can petition for this relief? No, I don't believe so. Sure on that? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, I didn't see. I didn't see it. Uh, but this it was one of the questions that was asked by mine. Uh, I'm just asking these people to be fact checking. Yeah. <coughs> I don't see a time limit in here. Okay. And then, is there an appeals process available if people are denied for good cause by the courts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, it is not specifically spelled out, but anything can be, any ruling of any court can be appealed up, up the chain. Uh, uh, through, you know, if you get denied by the circuit court, you can appeal that up to the appeals court. I think the question what they're asking is, is the amendment designing some sort of reservoir to catch people that push the thing back? Uh, so, it, again, it's not specified in the amendment that any court ruling, that's just, you know, if a, if a certain court says this, then you can always appeal it to the, the next, uh, to the appeals court. Got it. <clears throat> we're going to keep talking about legal stuff, and we're going to go back into possession. So, um, let's see. The language doesn't permit or protect the use of marijuana, uh, public use of marijuana, um, and there are limitations that are set forth. Um, can you explain how people could be incriminated while using the plant and to what degree? So, uh, you know, the, the way we treat public use is essentially that we, uh, the default is that it's prohibited, but local governments can make that otherwise. Uh, so they have the ability to uh, allow it, uh, they can allow it everywhere, uh, or they can designate certain areas, uh, such as a consumption lounge, something like that, uh, or pretty much anywhere, they, they have that ability. Uh, but so the there is no uh, specific thing that the amendment says that uh, you know they this sort of behavior incriminates you. And in fact, if uh, uh, the only way that an officer would have the ability to you know, execute a search or something uh, would be that they would have to have specific evidence that you have that you're in uh, excess of what the amendment allows. That's actually one of my questions that I wanted to talk about: is how did they define that? Who's who's determining when they say? I, I, I suspect this person has more than they are supposed to have. Yeah, I think it would be very, very difficult for them to uh, make a probable cause out of that uh, because, frankly, you know, most of the time, the way that cannabis arrests happen are they say that you smell like cannabis. That's, that's the easiest thing. Uh, and it's almost unrebuttable uh, because, uh, you know, a smell that's just very in, in specific. Uh, but they would not be able to use 
that as a as ground for probable cause for a warrant. What if you were driving? So if you were actively driving, that is the one exception, yes. Uh, if you're, because that would still implicate potentially driving under the influence. And then, okay, so one of the one of the, the most dangerous places for a black person to get arrested is in a driver's house. And a lot of times, probable cause is what's used to escalate situations. If a person that has already been targeted by not only the war on drugs, but also just by policing in general, is pulled over and the cop smells cannabis on them. They can use that as probable cause to investigate. So yes, uh, but here's the thing. I mean, here would be what I would say. Look, uh, driving under the influence is a real, you know, that is something that is dangerous to other people. There has to be some limitation on that. Uh, you know, I, I think we limit how that can be enforced. You know, we say we can't. Uh, say, oh, you have you know, a certain number of nanograms of uh, THC in your bloodstream per milliliter, uh, which is what some states do, and I think that's a really bad idea. It's not backed up by science. But nonetheless, uh, you know, there is a public interest in making sure that uh, people are not impaired on any substance while driving. Uh, so you know, I, I think we have to have some allowance for that. Uh, but I, I see your point, uh, and I think it does get that th there are things that are deeper and more systemic than what this can fix, uh, but do need to be addressed. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I think there needs to be kind of a, a major over, overhaul in how policing is handled, generally speaking. Uh, and there's there's a whole bunch of things I could go into about that, uh, uh, that literally would be here for hours. Uh, but I, I think that that, the, the problem you highlight is real. I don't know that we can solve it simply by legalizing marijuana. In any, like, just that I don't think there is a simple solution to that on just that single policy. But I mean, what if we didn't have limits? I mean, what if there wasn't, what if limits weren't, if the, if the officer didn't have the cause to be like, oh, well, that smells like a lot of cannabis. It smells like you might have more than you're supposed to have. So it is only, it's only an issue if you're actively driving, uh, you know, and that's, it's not about how much you have at that point. It's about whether you are actively under the influence. That's, that's really the question. It's not, uh, you know, uh, what the amount that you have. You could have none, but if you have an active smell of it, uh, then, I mean, it's the same thing that's true of alcohol. You know, if they uh, come up in the car and say, well, this breath smells like al alcohol, then that does give them probable cause to uh, have, you know, attempt to give you a breathalyzer. You can refuse it, of course, but then they impound your car. Uh, that is, you know, like, there are a lot of things that I, uh, we could do better on how all these things are enforced, but I do think there is some some reasonable enforcement for how people are driving on, on the highways. So back to driving, uh, away from the road and back on the street, uh, we can still, though, be uh, not just ticketed, but if we have more than double the legal limit, we can be arrested, right? Well, so that is something the amendment is just silent. That statute, that could be changed by the legislature at any time, uh, but that's just, you know, there's only so far that the amendment goes. Uh, so there is no specific provision that says, uh, you know, if you go beyond uh, that that limit, uh, that it's just, you know, where the amendment is silent, current statute kicks back in. Got it. So I guess, and I guess the, the part where 
the two things that I could, that seem to match up though is a lot of the language that talk, talks about dismantling the existing uh, criminal enterprises of the illicit market um, and also keeping criminal regulations on the planet. Seems like not, it doesn't just seem like it's a, it appears to be a strategic militant approach to keep a stronghold on the market by making sure that there aren't legacy growers. I mean, look, if, uh, I, I will say this, that if it were just totally up to our coalition, I don't think anyone would have supported up a section limit, period. Uh, that is a, a nod to the reality that every single other state has a possession limit. Uh, ours would be the tied for second highest in the country. Uh, and it's a, it's a, the, the, if there was not a federal prohibition, I don't think there would be any need for it, period. Uh, but because of the fact that there is still a federal prohibition that the feds have basically said, you have to control the flow of it out of the state. It can't cross state lines. Then that, that has been one of the ways that it has been, that has been regulated. So back to the home. We're off the street and we're at the home. I can still, with a warrant, they can still knock on my door, but then knock it down, right? So they would have to, they would have to knock and announce. Uh, I'm here. Yeah. Uh, so I would, if, I, if it were strictly up to me, there would be a lot of changes to how the police operate in general in terms of these sorts of So the reason I bring this up is just kind of like some of the semantics around no knock rates. All right. I just kind of wanted to kind of clarify what that means, right? Because as long as they knock, they can still bust your door open. I mean, that is a problem in general for how we enforce all sorts of things. Right. Uh, and I, I, you know, the, the militarization of the police has been an absolute disaster in this country. And this is not, I will, I will also preface this with, this is, I am now not speaking as the, the, because this goes beyond the amendment, but this is just my personal feeling. I've written about it quite a bit. Right. And I think that that's part of the thing is, you know, what, what might, even if not the intended uh, accusation, but what might be the effects of this amendment that actually might exacerbate some of these other systems? So I, I, I doubt that would happen. Uh, and, you know, one of the things we also do is uh, we say, look, if the police are executing any kind of warrant for anything related to marijuana, they have to report what they thought they were going to find, what they actually did find. Uh, you know, and explain their reasoning, and it all has to go into a report to the attorney. But they can report that they found nothing. Uh, I mean, but then there is a public, a lot of the problem with, there is no accountability right now in a lot of the search warrants that are executed because the public has no way of knowing, oh, well, the police said in, in 100% of cases, they said they were going to find this, and they only found it in 30% of cases. Uh, and when there have been reporting systems that have required that, that sort of information starts coming out. And, you know, it is not in and of itself a fix to that problem, but providing that information, I think, does give us the means to address that problem more thoroughly down the road. But, you know, part of the issue is we just don't, like, because they're, the, the police records are often very hard to find, they're uh, broken out of the jurisdiction, there is not a good way to get your, hand, your head around the actual facts of the situation. And so we're trying to provide a, something that allows that, and I would hope that it becomes become something that can be used in search warrants being executed more generally, uh, because it, a lot of these things are done with way, way too much force, right? Or you know, good reason, right? Well, you know, and the thing that I, you know, and I appreciate, I mean, there are a lot of things that I appreciate about your personal perspective. But let's be real, like as much as you see some of the things that you see and that you like or hope that they would be that way, uh, we're still left to the word of the law. 
and we're still left to the structure of what the word says. Even though the spirit of the law says we're moving in the right direction and we're trying to keep a good pace with this, the word of the law still leaves us with potential dangers and threats if we don't follow these regulations that the amendment is putting in the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not here to say that this is uh, the be-all, end-all that solves all the problems. I, I think it solves the vast, vast majority of problems uh, related to this particular subject. But, yeah, uh, right. but there are, then you have big, thorny problems that are tangential but tie into the subject, uh, and that, you know, we may not be able to address all of those or even any, sometimes at all uh, in this. Uh, and I, I acknowledge that I think there are still things that would need to be worked on on the subject of marijuana after this is uh, this is passed. So, uh, on a wider uh, taking the pressure off a little bit, I want to talk about something that I like, uh, and that uh, because we're sitting in uh, consumption lounge, and I took a lot of risks, obviously, and had to, you know I talked to you before I even started this whole thing, and uh, my understanding of the legal language gave me a confidence to do so. But from what I'm understanding with this language is that you're, the Amendment 3 is giving power to cities to basically regulate how they allow public consumption. Yes. And then if they, if, if a local municipality gives regulation to support public consumption, what is there to protect uh, entities from being harassed by the state at that point if they're in a municipality that is gone for the drink? I mean, I, I don't think the state would have any grounds to, uh, because the, the amendment gives the, that power to municipalities. Does it protect, does it protect those? Because uh, I think one of the concerns that's been had about city versus state politics is one of the same things that people say about state versus federal politics. It's like, at what level do does the lower level of politics get to, to stop? You know, where, where do the flies in the face of the next level of politics stop? Yeah. So, you know, it, the, the thing is, is that the amendment explicitly gives that power to local government. So, uh, you know, the uh, uh, state actor could not, if, that, if you're in compliance with the city uh, or county, what have you, uh, could not come in. I mean, they, they could. They'd be breaking the law. Uh, and, you know, there some, sometimes people describe scenarios to me and I'm like, well, yeah, that's that could happen if they literally broke the law. Right. But that That is. You know, when someone kind of pulls a, let's say, a, a January 6th that just tries to, like, totally go beyond the law, well, you know, there's just, that that is a problem that you can't solve with law. Uh, that That is, uh, and, uh, you, you know, I don't think we have that a ton of the time, but there are people that do that. Uh, but, you know, that's, that is something that you, you know, when writing a law, you just can't uh, solve directly. So I'm going to go into, we, are, we still got a lot to cover here. I want to make sure that we get to it all, and I want to get to our, uh, some folks in the room, too. Um, so I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit, and I'm going to get a little less just like uh, conversational about the answers, and uh, unless, they, unless we really need to elaborate on it. Okay, fair. Sure. Cool. So uh, we're going to talk about micro-businesses. And um, so there are two license types, if I understand this right. There are micro-business micro wholesale, license, wholesale licenses and dispensary licenses, is that right? Yes. And when I was reading the laws, it seems like the only permission that's given to the wholesale cultivator that's not given to the dispensary is actually to grow, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Well, to, and to manufacture. Well, if I, when I was reading it, it, seemed, it, the way I was reading it, it read as if, Dispensaries have the ability to manufacture. 
I, I believe they have the ability to create pre-rolls, okay. uh, which every every licensed entity that you know, from cultivators, uh, manufacturers, and dispensaries have that ability under the amendment. Uh, there was a big uh, discussion over how that should happen uh, in the rules with the medical marijuana, and the department basically gave it to the manufacturers. But it's there's no reason why it should every entity shouldn't have that. Right, and then okay, so uh, let's see. So let's talk about qualifications, um, or maybe let's first summarize what micro businesses are. We should do that. So um, I'll summarize, and you tell me if this if it sounds right. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> micro business licenses are a program. Actually, I'm gonna let you because I think I need to take a drink of water. <laughs> sure. So it's a minimum of 144 licenses that are targeted uh, largely towards groups that are. Uh, you know, have been disproportionately impacted by the prohibition on marijuana. Uh, and uh, they would be able to, the wholesalers would be able to cultivate, manufacture, uh, the dispensaries would be able to sell directly to patients, uh, and the cultivators can grow up to 250 flowering plants at any given time. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the basic overview there. Got it. So, um, qualifications for this, uh, it's, you said primarily is targeting. Um, uh, what is it that you said is primarily targeting you? Communities that have been harmed by prohibition of marijuana. Got it. Okay, so some of the qualifications um, are uh, one of them is that you must reside in a zip code with certain specifications, right? And those the zip, the zip code specifications fall in, I think, two different categories. One, well, one is the school character. So for zip codes, it has to be a zip code that has been a certain percentage under the poverty line socioeconomically on average for three out of the last five years. Are you about to live there? Three out of the last five years? Yeah, that's correct. And it's a, I think it's 200% uh, under the poverty or the average. Yeah, I believe it's 250% of the, of the poverty line. Okay. So part of this is that the person just has to live there, though, right? Yes. So when we're talking about um, so when we're talking about places like St. Louis or Kansas City, where gentrification is on the rise, and you have white, rich professionals that are moving into a fluently minority under the poverty line uh, uh, neighborhoods, and are both buying a property, residing, and starting businesses. Um, if I was a rich white guy that just moved to Cherokee Street uh, within the, and I've been here for at least three years, I could qualify for this, right? Uh, I, believe, I believe 63118 would qualify. Yeah. We have a lot of rich white guys in 63118. I don't dispute that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, here's the thing. <laughs> there is, uh, there, there's a tension between, you know, how tightly do we draw the, uh, the qualifications and basically risk almost no one being able to, to apply. Uh, and then how broadly and make it almost open to anybody. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm not, again, I'm not here to say this is perfection, but it is something that, you know, our coalition talked about quite a lot and, you know, wanted to, uh, we, I think we drew it relatively broadly, uh, but, you know, I, I think that it is still going to be very helpful to people that are, uh, you know, have been harmed by the war. I mean, you know, the, the very first one, or at least uh, okay, one of the main ones is, if you have yourself been convicted of an offense that is now expunged, uh, or if you're a direct you know, family member dependent upon uh, someone who had, had one of those offenses, 
And so, you know, that basically, the, the, the people that have got the most direct impact on them would be, would qualify. Right. And we're, and we, are, th those individuals are also being pooled with disabled veterans and with those that have been in, uh, uh, that have lived in qualifying zip codes. Right. Um, I think one of the other uh, parameters that's in there, I know, is that it talks about um, living in a or, or graduating from a school that is unaccredited uh, within the last five years. But uh, we were doing some digging and we saw that there have actually been no schools that were unaccredited in the last five years in Missouri. So hold on, I don't believe it's, uh, let's see. Uh, graduated from a school district that was unaccredited or had a similar successor designation at the time of graduation. Uh, so if you graduated from a school district that was unaccredited at that time, Got then it. you would qualify. Got it. Got it. So the last school that was unaccredited was over eight years ago, uh, and there were only two in Missouri at that point. So there was there was a period of time where the entire city of St. Louis, uh, the, the school district, was was unaccredited. And so, and just to be clear, there's no year limit on how far back that that goes. There's no restriction. So if you were unaccredited in 1998 when you graduated, then you would fall. If the school district, when you were there, was unaccredited, yes. So another thing on my glasses is just um, make sure I get this right. So why is it that and I, I want to preface this by saying that both of these groups deserve focus. But why is it that uh, that minorities, or excuse me, those that have been affected by the war on drugs, because uh, I'm, I'm mixed up right now. I want to. I want to land this. So, I just want to be clear that for people that have been uh, that have been not for people of color that have not been affected by the war on drugs, but that have been at the receiving end of corporate racism, uh, that have been at the receiving end of adversities culturally, being a black or brown person, maybe they were targeted, weren't arrested. Uh, maybe they've uh, had to struggle to get to the point where they were in their own professionalism. If they aren't living in a uh, in, in a zip code that qualifies or went to a school that qualifies, if you are just a person of color, uh, there are not any provisions here to actually help you. Is that right? There are no specifically race-based uh, uh, qualifications. Got it. Uh, and I mean, one of, we did discuss that. One of the things, so... When you file an initiative, the Attorney General's office gets to make the determination about uh, what is called facial constitutionality. Uh, so if they think that there is something unconstitutional in it, they can just say, We're, you, you're not allowed to file this. And you can appeal it, you can take it to the courts, but it kind of felt like Eric Schmidt would do that on something that is specifically you know, a race-based Race case. Yes, understood. So um, on that, I also, um, well, I'll just ask it like this. Why are we all being pulled together? Uh, you know, those of us that may qualify based on the parameters of socioeconomic status and also veterans. Uh, why is this all in one cluster? Yes. 
and there are separate taxes that are being developed for the veteran programs. There seems to be a lot of isolated focus on veterans to make sure that they're having uh, what they need, which is awesome. Um, but I think the part of the concern is, is that this micro business program, and we'll talk about how many licenses in a minute, but that we have a lot of different subgroups that are now competing for this already smaller license. And so a lot of people are asking why we're kind of being corralled that way. Um, one of the quotes was, why are we all being segregated from the rest of the market? So in terms of being able to buy and sell from the, the larger licenses? Mm -hmm. I guess that's probably part of it. Yeah. I think that part of it probably has to do with the, like, the, uh, I would assume that part, not assume, but I know that part of it is also um, just that due to the need to be ambiguous, people that have actually been affected by the war on drugs the most, black and brown people, black and Latino and indigenous people, uh, feel uh, many times like this is not, that there isn't a direct focus on that cultural need. Uh, and I know that you have some answers for that. Um, part of that I know is that the, that the, that the amendment has actually built in uh, the need for a chief equity officer and that that chief equity officer is supposed to be hired within the first 60 days of this going into effect, this, this language going into effect. Um, I could see that as being a good thing. Um, I, I see that also in the language it says that the, the chief equity officer basically will be creating the standards that they'll be holding. Um, so that was more of a statement. I just wanted to acknowledge that, that I, I see that there is a piece in there where even though we're all being clustered together, that there is something that's being focused on to say, okay, um, there is still a need to focus on the, specifically the groups that have been most affected by the war on drugs. And we should have people that are out here looking at these entities and seeing what they're doing about it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's uh, meant to be something that someone that is uh, holding people accountable uh, within the system to make sure that it achieves the, the goals of you know, helping the, the groups that are uh, able to apply and hold micro licenses. Okay. Um, so, cool. I slowed down again. I got to speed up. <laughs> uh, so, another question is that dispensaries can package, process, is micro dispensaries can process, it, I'm pretty sure it says process. We need to go back to this. Um, okay, package, process, and store offsite. What does offsite storage mean? So basically, there's uh, uh, <coughs> places that uh, I don't know if they store offsite currently, but there are you know, a warehouse or something like that uh, where you could where you could store the marijuana. Uh, it'd be you know, you'd have to have it regulated through the department, but it would you know that that is uh, allowed. Uh, it, it, and you know, there's been uh, kind of an issue, and this is very in the weeds, but uh, you know, like uh, transporters right now have to deliver everything that they have within 24 hours. And so it's kind of made it a, a logistical problem in the industry that uh, is kind of driving up costs because people, you know, the transport has to go all the way across the state, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so uh, as opposed to letting them store product places so that they don't have to, you know, make one uh, a trip across the entire state for a small amount. But I, but I couldn't just like buy a pod and store my weed in it. In uh, that, that storage facility, right. as a consumer, I buy a pod. No, I'm talking about uh, micro business, micro license. It would have to be, it would have to be secure. 
but it, it, right. yeah, I, I mean, like, it, it, as long as it meets the security uh, standards, yes. Okay, so why can micro businesses only do business with other micro licenses? So you know, I, I think the the advantage of it is that it helps the cultivators because they are then definitely going to have the shelf space. Is what we've seen. You know, anyone that is coming late to the market because uh, the, the market's already out there. That is just a, a fact. Uh, and if you're uh, and you know the, the cultivators that are coming online right now uh, and manufacturers, they are finding it very difficult uh, to break into into the market because of the fact that there's already you know people have already kind of set up what uh, what brands they have, the, the, the patients know what mix of products. So you're have. saying that this is this is designed to make sure that they have space in the market. It's 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 to because it, for a lot of people, it seems to read the opposite. They feel like it's, it, 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 with the micro license program, this is actually restricting them because they're not going to be able to work with, say, cookies or, uh, you know, uh, or maybe uh, Modan Cannabis or any other brand that they might be enthusiastic about that's sitting on the other side of these burning sands now. Uh, you know, uh, I think that that's often how it reads, is that there are going to be more opportunities lost than opportunities gained. So, you know, I can understand that perspective. Uh, but you know what we've seen in a lot of other markets that have done this so far is that the dispensaries do just fine uh, because you can kind of uh, uh, there's almost always a good location to put a new dispensary uh, and dispensaries get to compete on location. They, they did, that's that's kind of one of their primary methods of competition. Uh, but the cultivators, uh, if they're they're coming to the market late, then they're finding it very difficult to make any sales because they're already uh, you know. Uh, the, the dispensaries that are out there already have decided, you know, here's the products we want to sell. There's already dominant brands. And so this is saying, look, these dispensaries will carry the products of the microcultivators, and they have to. Uh, and so that is something that gives them a guaranteed market, a guaranteed outlet for their products. So why can, uh, if I apply, why can I only have one? So, I mean, mainly because it's uh, designed for people that are, you know, trying to trying to break into the market, uh, may not have a lot of capital, may not be uh, able to stand up a, a very large operation. So, the the social equity measures are in place. Basically, it just reads that I only am getting help if I'm poor or struggling. But if I'm just a an innovative minority that's trying to get into the industry. I've been arrested. Where where's the where is the motivation for like basically I'm noting one of the biggest pieces that the cannabis culture wants. Uh, you know, people that may be on the fence about this or that are even voting no, is that they feel like it's leaving them out. Uh, they feel like there's not a bridge being built for them to like find their way in, you know. Um, where is it that allows for us um, Okay, I'm going to rephrase this. I went to the coffee shop. I go to a micro-roaster. You see me there. Some coffee. All right, so I was telling Scott about the law. And one of the things that I told him is, I said, you know, one of my concerns is that we can't be vertical as a micro-license. And he said, and he immediately knew what I meant. He said, wait, so you can't roast your coffee and then bag it and then sell it over the counter? He said, I barely make money, and I can do all these steps. How are you expected to make money? And so I think that that's part of the concern is not that we're not going to have access, but it's that we're going to be put if we qualify for these licenses, which I would, 
uh, that we would be put in a position that we would be uh, uh, restricted more than we would be assisted. You know, it's like, and that without being able to be vertical, there's concern about how we would actually stay revenue positive, positive and compete with brands that are out here that are figuring out how to do decent flour at a higher commodity level at a more commodity price. Yeah, uh, I mean, I take your point there, but here's the thing. Uh, if you're uh, not able to actually... So, you know, the, the people that are hurt in the market definitely have an advantage, but that takes a lot of money to be able to, to actually put up a vertical operation. Uh, and so one of the things that we do here is that we allow people to kind of step up into the contract. Well, it's $1,500, right? For the application for yeah. that for license? So yeah. if I had three grand, I could apply for two licenses, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, theoretically, if I was allowed to. And I'm just, when we're talking, and this is where it starts to kind of feel insulting. Because it's not that much money. Two licenses, to get two licenses, to be able to, to acquire uh, both sides of it, to say, oh, well, you know, it feels like it's saying, well, well you know, it's, you're not responsible or are able. You're not, you're not, uh, you know, uh, you don't have the means and you couldn't be trusted. This probably wouldn't be good for you if you had the whole thing. So we're going to parcel it out in pieces for you so you don't mess it up. Well, there's also a question of how many people um, are able to hold the licenses. And so, if, you know, uh, we did want to prevent people from getting a whole bunch of them. Uh, and trying to spread that out a little bit. But isn't that done by the restriction on how they're being released? Because there are only six being released per congressional district, four that are going to be cultivation, two that are going to be dispensaries, and that's that's within the first, what, three or 300 and something days? Uh, yeah, that's the, the first wave. Of them. And then the next one doesn't have to come for another, like, 570 days or something. No, uh, it was 270. That's the last one. The last round is 270. The middle round is over 500 days. I think that's incorrect. But um, we can, we can we're not here to debate. <laughs> but I, the question is: is you know where where is it? Like it seems like that that restriction is already put in place. Isn't it already being restricted by how many licenses are being put out at once? So uh, I mean, no, I don't think so. Because if you have a situation where uh, that's unrestricted, then you could have somebody that won you know five, ten of them, uh, and that's you know a substantial chunk of that market. But why not two? Like, why can't I have cultivation? Like, why can't I be vertical? You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I maybe that was a, we could have drafted it that way. I'm not, uh, you know, again, I'm not here to say that this is the absolute be all end all. Uh, but, you know, I think it's a reasonable way of trying to spread out the number of licenses that are held by different individuals and groups. And I guess the biggest thing with this is that, you know, a lot of this is experimental. We don't have many models to base this off of. So a lot of this is that we we're supposed to have a lot of blind faith in this amendment to do this and for it to actually benefit us. Um, there are, we have a couple social equity platforms that have been pretty heavy hitters around the country. And I think that one of the things that gets said about this law or with, about our initiative here in Missouri, this one, is that it is one of the most comprehensive um, I agree with that, but is it fair to say that as far as social equity provisions that we are not the strongest? Uh, I mean, I think it's a pretty strong social equity program. But we don't... Uh, sorry. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I mean, you know, the, the kind of states that were around when we were drafting this, uh, you know, uh, New York had not yet completed uh, their law when we were kind of uh, doing most of this. Uh, and so we were really looking at Illinois law. So we were, I mean, I, and I, I don't think Illinois has a, has a great program. Uh, but that was one of the things that we had to, had to look at. This is Why is it then that the campaign doesn't even use the words social equity? It's not on the language. It's not anywhere on the website. It's not anywhere in the state language. I have certainly used the term, but I mean, I, I, I mean, it, it may not be in the actual like, uh, you know, the the top three things that we said. But that is, I can't find it anywhere on the website. I, I've looked through it a handful of times. Anybody can fact check me after this. But the main thing that is is that there are a lot of things again that have been presented in the spirit of the law. You know, you can say that you you feel that way, and that's great. But that's not the way it's written. Social equity, actually, I, I don't see it being, I haven't seen it in, in any uh, social media posts. I haven't seen it in any Instagram posts. Uh, it just hasn't been a buzzword that's been used. You know, why is that? So, you know, I would bet there is uh, at least somewhere in the uh, Facebook or Instagram world that that is, that is out there. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that the actual impact of the law will have a lot of social equity in it. Uh, regardless of you know terminology that's being used. Got it. Um, so I think you might have already answered this in a way. Um, but why are I talked a little bit about uh, the licensing? And you were right. The middle the middle group is two seventy five. The last group is five hundred and forty eight days. So the, the spanning of the micro licenses is three hundred days for the first round. 275 days for the second round, and 548 days for the third round. And we're talking about six licenses per congressional district. So that means then there are, are how many? Nine? How many? Eight. Eight, eight congressional districts. And um, so we're talking about how many licenses at one time? Eight times 48. 48 licenses at a time. So 48 licenses will be awarded within that first 300 days. But why are they being spaced out like that? So that I, the idea is that that is going to give them some opportunity to get set up uh, and get built out and uh, you know, start the process before there's more competition that comes out. Uh, and also the market will continue to build uh, over time. What we've kind of seen in these markets is, you know, the first year you have maybe uh, one and a half to two times uh, what the, the medical program was by, you know, year two, year three, then you're looking at triple or maybe even more than that, the size of the market. It, and I guess if the initiative does what it's, if it's intended, then it would be, well, okay. So uh, I got to keep, got to keep it. Um, what qualifications, back to qualifications, what qualifications exactly, uh, or what qualifies as historically disadvantaged populations? So I don't know if that is specifically, which, uh, which section are they, or which, uh, Specific provision of the mm -hmm. doesn't say we'll skip it now for time, okay? Because it's not, we've got some other juice to get to. But, I mean, if people want to look at the exact qualifications and read through all of them, uh, it is on page 26, uh, starting with A. There. Got it. So, other micro license cultivation centers are capped at having or micro license cultivation centers. This is a question from Facebook. Microlicense cultivation centers are capped at having 250 flowering plants at any given time found in definitions. 
why is this unduly burdensome regulation included? It's partially opinion and unduly burdensome, but that's the way they feel. That's a perception. What's your answer? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, on the, the existing medical licenses, a lot of times the departments actually force people to basically build out uh, maximum capacity. Uh, and so if that, something like that were to happen uh, on the, the micro licenses, and, you know, they were had huge canopies, uh, that could cost, you know, $10, $15 million. Uh, and this is a difficult market to get financing in. It's probably going to become more difficult as interest rates are rising. You can't go to a bank. So, I mean, it was something that was meant to make sure that there is, it is upscaled that for people that may not have, you know, $10 million cash to be able to do it. Got it. Uh, moving on to comprehensive licenses. Uh, we're going to go through some comprehensive licenses and then we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and we're going to do some in-person question, questions. Um, comprehensive licenses. Um, I've read quotes uh, from license holders historically uh, or and recently stating that there's uh, not that much money being made uh, as it, or not as much money being made as it appears. Um, and that they're banking on adult use legalization to ensure their survival. So STL Today just released an article, uh, STL Today just released an article yesterday uh, covering this topic. Is it accurate that medical license holders are not making enough profit right now? And is this adult use initiative being used, being pushed partly to remedy the shortfalls of the medical market? I mean, you know, I, I don't think there's any secret that the people that have uh, medical marijuana licenses or are interested in expanding the, the market in some way want to see the ability of uh, more people to be able to sell, uh, to purchase purchase their products. I mean, that's that's not, uh, that, that, that is very straightforward. Certainly that's the case. Well, I think that what specifically what's being said, said is underneath the existing medical uh, climate, in the existing climate, they're not bringing enough money to to get out of the red. And so many of them are grappling into Amendment 3 as a buoy, as a saving grace to keep them from going under. I mean, it is a fact in just the marijuana industry in general. It is not that easy to make profit. Uh, the biggest thing is, and frankly, I think this is something that is uh, often not discussed as kind of a social equity thing, but it should be, frankly. 280E uh, makes it very, very difficult for anyone to make profit because of the fact that you can't deduct your regular business expenses. And so that kind of advantages the groups that have the most money that can uh, you know, sit on, uh, can build out a big infrastructure and kind of wait and wait and wait until hopefully federal legalization happens. So is it is it fair though to, to weigh some of the success of Amendment 2 partly based on the success of license holders right now? No, I mean, uh, I, I don't think it really matters from the point of view of uh, you know, what we did Amendment 2 for uh, uh, business owners, but business. That's, uh, that is not you know, our, our problem, really. Uh, but as long as there is a market that is serving the patients, that was the, the function there. Uh, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's a tough market. And people may go. I mean, I know several that have gone out uh, already in this, in this market. Uh, and that's just, that's the breaks. Um, so I want to be clear, just to, 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 as far as comprehensive licenses, Amendment 3 has no social equity components for comprehensive licenses, is that correct? So it does, uh, because the half of any new comprehensive licenses would have to be awarded to people that successfully operate a micro license. 
in the first round of licenses, there are no social equity provisions that are being put in place, correct? That's it. And so if there are if there are none in this round, I'm just gonna keep it there. Uh, what does the initiative do to give more and more minorities and ownership of comprehensive licenses? Um, why is it suggested but not required or incentivized? I read an entire paragraph in there that basically says, like, go get them, get out there and, and talk to your staff and your company about why social equity, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I don't say social equity, but about why disadvantaged populations that have specifically been targeted by the war on drugs, why it matters to include them in the fold of commitment. But it says we're not requiring you to. Um, but there is also no incentive to that. So why is it that it's put in there? Because basically it reads to me as if it was said just to say and that there's no there's nothing else to it. Like, oh we said it. So we checked the box. That's how it reads. So, you know, it is something that is meant to encourage uh, companies if they're, uh, I believe it's as part of the conversion to comprehensive licenses, right? That uh, they are, uh, yeah, they're not required, but they uh, are encouraged to give a plan for, you know, uh, creating diversity and, you know, making sure that there's inclusion. But there's no incentive or anything. There's no, like, reward. They don't even get, like, a, there's nothing that says, like, we have, you know, like, why isn't there something going on with the, with the DEI, with the diversity um, officer and with this transition here to actually make impact as these licenses are occurred. yeah uh so uh, i think there was some discussion about like would we actually be able to force that onto onto the businesses or would we just encourage it well, uh, well i mean didn't new jersey literally like give up half of their licenses or new york half of their licenses to social equity applicants if they just said it we're not going to give these to anyone else yeah, so the new licenses, uh, the uh, the existing licenses are converting their life, you know, into... I guess my point is, is like, you can say it because you're writing it, right? It's like, you can put it in there. It's just a matter of whether you feel like it would be supported to be voted on, right? So there, I mean, what we can tell a private business to do, uh, we, there's plenty of things that we can tell them to do, but I don't know that we can automatically say this is, you have to implement this kind Understood. of, like, human resources plan. Understood. All right, so there are, um, let's see. There are plenty of black and brown professionals that are immersed in the cannabis industry, but experience adversity at the hands of the corporate rate of corporate racism. I kind of already kind of said this, like, every, like in every other industry. Um, we only get help, help as minorities if we're poor or have been arrested. Uh, additionally, there are veterans that would also like a shot at having comprehensive licenses. Why aren't we being offered opportunities to get comprehensive licenses in the first round? So, you know, the, the in the original round, that is going to be just the existing medical marijuana operators. Uh, and that's, you know, that, those are the people that have businesses that are already able to basically turn over and start selling built-in marijuana. How about and then the, you know, the, the, all the new licenses are targeted towards, you know, the, the, the people who qualify for micro. How likely is it that we will actually get new licenses issued? new comprehensive licenses i would almost i mean i'll i can't guarantee things but uh you know i would say it's almost a certainty because here's the thing uh there are you know the department has continued to issue new medical marijuana licenses uh and so if they issue more of them after this passes then they have to issue some of them 
50%. So DHSS is actively onboarding new medical marijuana licenses. I mean, it's not like at a huge rate that gets, uh, I mean, it's basically coming out of a pool of peers. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, they add, you know, I don't know. So these aren't new applicants. These are people that submitted and are appealing have paid a lot more money and bought in court. Not necessarily in court, but yeah, I mean, okay. they, they, they have appealed and they've uh, either settled or won in a few instances, but mostly settlements. Uh, but, you know, that would still mean that they continue to do that. There's them out there and they, they have to give half the, the new licenses to people that uh, qualify for micro businesses. Uh, so the department department can issue emergency rules for a plan including social equity, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would think the department would have that capability. Uh, you know, the department has pretty broad latitude under uh, under the rulemaking authority to you know do quite a few things. So that's the one thing that I see is that the department has flexibility to change this how they would need to, and that's actually one of the things that people like Dan Beats have said to me before that once this has gone through, that we can go back and fix it. Uh, for the things that we want, you know? and I'll, I, there, I, I have mixed feelings about that that statement and about that perspective. I don't really feel like it's my job as a minority to have to go back and fix the things that I think that are going to help me in an industry that's already trying to build itself culturally on my back. But the uh, the bigger issue is, uh, I mean, not the issue, but the bigger question is, how realistic is it? For uh, there to be emergency uh, provisions issued, like has that already happened? So they will have to issue emergency rules, uh, basically after the passage of this, uh, to comply with the timelines in there, because the traditional rulemaking process takes uh, I don't know, take up to like six nine months. Uh, if you remember back in 2019 when they did the medical rules, uh, they started that in December and they issued the first ones in I think June. And then they kind of continued to, it probably took another month or so. Uh, and that's that's how long. And actually, I think those still have not fully gone through. Uh, I think those were still emergency rules, even under that that time. Got it. So with comprehensive licenses, um, right now it says uh, in the language, it says that any entity can apply for a comprehensive license. Uh, does this mean the department will be accepting paid applications for comprehensive licenses from anyone uh, before they could be accepted, uh, given that licenses holders will get access to all of the first round. Can people start paying and applying right now? So like maybe once this passes. I, I said maybe in theory they could, uh, but you know the department would have the discretion as to when that when that application window would open up. Got it. Um, and will the will the campaign be making uh, will they will the campaign be advertising that licenses are open or applications will be open or anything like that? Will they be putting that public that you could apply right now if you wanted to. Uh, so, no, I mean, as the campaign, that would not be you know, something that we would do. Got it. Okay, we may have lost our feed. <laughs> Looks like we lost our feed. She was on her cell phone um, doing that for us. Um, but I think we got as much of it as we could this evening. Um, thank you guys for tuning in. The website uh, that they have it streaming on uh, is uh, www.p2pmo.com. 
I don't know any login, anything. This is what was on the poster. And the poster also said it was lasting an hour. So, <laughs> um, but uh, I don't see that she's probably going to come back because her phone probably did die. I was wondering how we were going to take a break and come back to. So, um, but thank you for joining us. This is a really important topic. Uh, a lot of you made a really, a lot of really good points. Um, and yeah, I don't, um, I wish we could do the whole thing. Um, we slated an hour for this. We went, um, almost two. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you can log in www.p2pmo.com. That's P, the number two, P, M-O.com. Um, so yeah, uh, I thought a lot of you made a real, a lot of really good points. Um, yeah, it was kind of, I was yelling for you guys. I was screaming for you guys. Um, but anyway, so, um, let me bring you in. So we're together. We're, <laughs> we've had the longest, oh, you're still muted. Hold on. Unmute. Oh, nope. You have to unmute yourself. Oh, she froze. Anyway, <laughs> you're unfrozen now. Um, it was an interesting one and I enjoyed the commentary and I wish we could bring you the rest of it. But unfortunately, like I said, it's a situation where her phone probably died and we want to shout out Marion Kuhn for um, being there for live streaming, for letting her phone die for us for the sake of the cause. Yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm, um, um, so that's okay. Uh, don't worry. Uh, thank you so much to also Don Abernathy. There are some questions in the comments that I think would be really relevant to ask. And I really do hope that they get asked, um, that there's time to ask those questions. Um, but as far as I could see, there was a lot of stumbling and making excuses for some really, y'all could do better, Missouri. Y'all could do better. Yeah, when when if you really want to cherry pick laws and and what's what other states are doing and 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 how you know, yeah, not so progressive y'all. Uh, yeah. Um, we love you guys. Thank, uh, you. thank you for tuning in this evening for our second session. I'll get all of these up um, tomorrow by tomorrow. I'll have the debate up by tomorrow on our Spotify, our Apple iTunes, and our Google Podcast, and I will also have. Both shows from today, um, uh, in in the in the in the in the in the in the um thing. Hey, so if you guys have a question that you want asked, um, if you could real quick tag Dawn Abernathy, are you friends with her, or reply to this comment says I need you to tag me. Uh, if you still want to ask the question, so I'm going to stay on for just a few more minutes. If you guys are still here and you want to tag. Dawn and get a question asked um, this evening. Uh, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it to it. Um, you got you got like five minutes. You got five minutes, and then we're gonna hit the two hour mark. We're gonna call it quiz. So I'm gonna give you five minutes if you want to throw something in the questions for um, John Payne or for Brennan. Um, please do so. Tag Dawn in Abernathy or reply to the comment. Oh, she wants you to tag. Oh, 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 well, okay. Hold on. Sorry. Okay. I'm going to do that. But I still, still, there's other questions. Go ahead and tag her in it. 
Uh, I thought I did, but let me just double check. I don't know how to do all that. Oh, I start. I start. I start three comments. So uh, let's see. How do I make this? I can't do that. Okay. So uh, I started that one. Why did Legal MO hire Steve Tilly and Tom Robbins? <laughs> She's her battery's going down too. Oh no. <laughs> okay. So maybe screenshot it or something. I don't know. Screenshot this real quick. Got <laughs> yeah, his. Okay. And then the other question that we had that I thought was a pretty good question. It says, I see the caregiver can have more patients, but why is the plant count not raised to match the patients? So that's a pretty good question, I thought. Um, and then uh, this one is just, uh, you know, a comment on the social equity. So I don't, I don't think that's an actual question. Um, so, yes. And that was it. Those were the questions. Um, we appreciate y'all for keeping tuning in. We appreciate you, Don. We appreciate you, Marion. We love you. Um, thank you so much. And thank you to Brennan England for providing um, this town hall. Thank you to the Cola Lounge. If you guys want to donate to the Cola Lounge, dollar sign, the Cola STL. Throw a couple bucks his way. He just moved to a new location. Uh, they're renovating. And um, they just had their first event. I think the other day was a Puff Pass paint. So it was really dope. Um, so yeah, go check it out if you're in St. Louis. Uh, definitely check it out in St. Louis. And uh, she's like, "What happened? Um, your phone died. It's fine. Um, <laughs> no big deal." Um, so yeah, check them out in St. Louis. Uh, you support the cause and vote. In our opinion, vote no. I mean, do what you want, but vote definitely vote. And we're gonna talk about this more on Wednesday. We're talking about more on Wednesday. So tune in on Wednesday. And you guys, set your alerts and your alarms and everything. We're here 420 every Monday and Wednesday. And, you know, we're not always talking about Missouri, Missourians. I see y'all coming in the comments. Uh, we're not always talking about Missouri, but we are always talking about uh, interesting things that are going on in and around our industry and our culture. So definitely tune in. We're, we're I mean, I think we've proven ourselves to you, right? <laughs> we love y'all. Uh, check us out. What is today? Monday. Check us out on Wednesday, the 26th at 420 Mountain Standard Time, 520 Central uh, for a whole new show. And we're going to continue the recaps. We're going to continue the recaps and the questions. And we're going to talk about this town hall, too. So it'll be fun. Uh, join us then. As always, you know what we say. Be nice to yourselves. Put your mask on before assisting others. It's very, very important. Very important. Uh, cultivate love. Bring it to you. All of it, all of it. You, you are worthy it. of love. Yes. Don't forget that. Oh, well, she's oh. talking to me. Um, <laughs> also, uh, stay, stay lifted. Everybody. Stay lifted. And go vote. Go vote. Go vote, vote. We love you guys. See you on Wednesday. <laughs>